Welcome to Living Truth Radio, a ministry of Living Truth Christian Fellowship with Pastor Michael Lands. It's our goal to build up believers and to reach out with God's truth to all people. And now, here's Pastor Michael. All right, so Genesis 3, the curse and the covering. We're going back to the beginning because we're trying to get answers from the Bible about the condition of the world, why things are the way they are, and what we can do to be people of God, people of the Word, in a culture that has gone totally sideways, in a culture that's confused about truth and about origins and about life and death. Where do you get your answers? Are the answers found in a human textbook? Are they found in your friends? Are they found in you know, some other religious system? Where are they found? philosophy. Uh, well, actually the Bible tells us where the answers can be found and the explanations for why things happen the way they do in this life. One thing that's going to come out clearly in this particular text is you're going to find out why we die. We die because there's a curse on this world. Because the wages of sin is death. And our first parents chose to eat something that was forbidden, and they re- they reap the consequences, and that's where we are today. We're in those consequences. We live on a cursed planet, but there's still hope. And in the midst of that curse, and God's going to give several curses. He's already cursed the serpent. We'll watch him curse the woman, and then he's going to talk to the man. In the midst of a, a chapter filled with curses, he's going to give us hope. He's going to tell us that he's going to cover us. And these these will all foreshadow the gospel, the hope that we have together. Father, thank you for all the precious people that have gathered on this Sunday morning in this place. Thank you for all you've granted to us in Christ Jesus. Thank you for the answers to all life's big questions found in these first few chapters of Genesis. Help us to have open ears to hear what you would say to us, a heart to receive it, a heart to take refuge in it, and a heart to act upon it. For your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as God is putting forth the curses, Adam and Eve have eaten of the forbidden fruit. They are hiding from God. God is walking through the garden in the cool of the day. I told you that may be a Christophany, an early appearance of Jesus Christ before Bethlehem, before the manger in human form. It does seem like whenever you see God appear to people in human form, it's probably what we call a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus. So way back in Genesis, it's probably Jesus in some sort of human form, walking in the garden in the cool of the day, it would seem that Adam and Eve in the garden experienced God walking into the garden at sunset, or maybe he was there all the time. There are some people that make a case that the Garden of Eden really became the, uh, an extension of the God's throne room or tabernacle. That may be the case as well. But we do know he came walking in the cool of the day, and Adam and Eve, with their makeshift garments out of fig leaves, are hiding. And God asked that penetrating question, echoing through the garden, Adam, where are you? He wasn't asking for his geography. He was asking about his heart. And Adam said, well, I heard your voice in the garden and I hid because I was naked. And God said, who told you you were naked? And have you eaten from the tree that I told you not to eat of? And Adam, with the classic blame shift 101, he took the class, said, the woman... Remember that? That's two Sundays ago. I got a bunch of emails. Nasty emails. No, I'm just kidding. I didn't. You guys were very nice. But I said to you, that captures it. The woman. Many men have said that over the centuries. 
that you gave me. Then he blamed God. He blamed the woman. Then he blamed God. Then the woman blamed the devil. The devil made me do it. And the devil looked and nobody there to blame. And so this is what we got from the beginning. We've got a fall. Now our first parents made the decision and God said, in the day you eat of it, you will what? Surely die. And now they have, you know, with the fruit on their lips, death has gone into their soul. But God comes looking for them. I want you to see that. It's part of what I tried to tell you last Sunday, that we, or two Sundays ago, we did a message called Hide and Seek. And I told you that even way back in the garden, God is a seeker of lost people. Jesus said in Luke 19.10, He has come, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Adam's hiding, Eve hiding, God seeking. Calls them out. And now the dialogue begins. And whenever you sin, here's the truth, and here's really the two simple truths in this message, there's consequences. Here they come out in a curse. And God is cursing the serpent first, He says in verse 15, Genesis 3, I will put enmity, that word means hostility, hatred, strife. I will put, Genesis 3.15, God doing it, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman. Now as the Bible unfolds, the woman becomes a picture of Israel. We can see that in the book of Revelation. And there's this hostility, it's going to be the serpent, the devil against mankind for sure. But it's especially against God's people. Israel, then the church, the combination of the two, hatred. I told you this explains a lot of history. Genesis 3.15 explains why the Egyptian pharaoh tried to throw the baby uh, boys in in Egypt. Uh, He's trying to throw the Hebrew babies into the Nile River because he was afraid. But behind him was the enemy, Satan, hostility, enmity. He wanted to make the river red with the blood of the Hebrew children. So God turned the Nile into blood. And he said, you're going to try to kill my people? I'm going to kill your God. The Egyptians thought the Nile River was a God, so God made it turn into blood. He made a mockery of their gods. You're not going to do that. Haman comes along in the book of Esther. He gets the king to sign an edict to destroy the Jewish population. Esther has to rise up to the moment. You are born, perhaps you came to the kingdom for such a time as this. And she comes and risked her life for her people, Haman is exposed and he hangs on the gallows and the, the uh, Jewish people are saved. Another H, Herod, comes along at the time of Jesus. He's threatened by this Messiah that's been, stars been seen. And so he kills all the baby boys, two years old and under, in the area of Bethlehem. And Rachel is mourning for her children. You have the Egyptian pharaoh, you have Haman, you have Herod. I mentioned to you there's others that we could talk about, but most re- in our most recent history, actually not, we have Hitler, who becomes Chancellor of Germany, rising to power in 1933, and now, and this is nothing new, we have all these nations, most recently Iran, saying they want to push Israel into the ocean, and they want that land for themselves. How do you explain a sliver of land no bigger than New Jersey, I've heard no bigger than San Bernardino County. No natural resources. It was basically underwater up until 1948. Nobody wanted the land. Why is there this debate about this land? Why this persecution against this specific group of people? It is is explained in Genesis 3.15. There's a hostility. 
There's a hatred. And the serpent, who ultimately is Satan, was trying to destroy the seed of the woman, Israel, and the seed of the woman that she will ultimately produce is the Messiah who will save mankind by crushing the serpent's head and his heel will be bruised. And you can think of the cross. He was crucified. He was bruised, afflicted, pierced for our transgressions. But it wasn't final. It wasn't determinative because he rose from the dead. But he will crush the serpent's head. He's already done that. But ultimately, the enemy, Satan, will end up in the lake of fire. This is what the Bible says is the explanation for our history. This is what's going on in the world. This is why when we tell you about prophetic events and where you should be looking, we say, look to Israel, look to Jerusalem, because that's where it all started, if you will, and that's where it's all going to wrap up. Now he addresses the woman, verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. Now, ladies, you might want to mark that one. I'm not highlighting that one personally. Now, my... (laughs) My wife has given birth to three wonderful boys, and I paced in the hospital many times. But I did thank God that I wasn't a woman as well. I just have to be honest. You ladies, man, it's amazing what you go through. And, and I know that some ladies have said that, you know, natural childbirth, that's what they go for, and some of them do do that. But some have thought an epidural is a pretty good discovery. <laughs> Amen? And so they go through... <laughs> hours of labor. Where did that come from? It would seem that there was going to be a little pain in childbirth, but not as much as women suffer now. Right where one of the main callings of a woman is, not every woman will have children, but this will be the majority of women. They will have children. They will mother. They will raise a family. Right where her primary calling is, she will experience pain. In fact, in the next chapter, she's going to watch a son kill another son. She's going to see that death will become a reality even in future generations. And now God addresses her. And he says to the woman, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, the Hebrew word speaks of sorrow. You shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now we'll get to Adam in a moment, but we know when she was by the tree and the serpent was tempting her, Adam was there. And finally, he ate of the fruit. What he was doing, we don't know. But he was being passive. But she was the one that was duped. And she admits it. She says, the serpent tricked me. He beguiled me. And I ate. And that was true. And God says, because you've done this, here's one of your consequences. Every time a child is born, there's going to be labor. There's going to be intense pain. And yet... In birth, we can see something, a reality that Jesus talks about in the Gospel of John. I'll give it to you, John 16, 20 through 22. He's getting ready to die on the cross. He's facing it the next day, and he says, John 16, 20. Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has sorrow, because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child... She remembers the anguish no more for the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too now have sorrow, but I will see you again, Jesus says to the disciples, and your heart will rejoice and no one will take your joy away from you. John 16, 20 through 22. So life becomes somewhat of a travail. When we go through difficult times, they're compared to seasons of labor. But there's always this glimmer of hope that 
Through the labor, a deliverance will come. In Matthew 24, when Jesus is talking about the end times and what the, perhaps the church we know for sure is real. Some people say tribulation saints. But we do know that people who are, are true to Christ are going to go through a terrible time and they're going to go through what Jesus describes as ever-intensifying labor pains. And then deliverance will come when the Messiah comes to rescue his church in the rapture and the resurrection. But up until that point, it's going to be heavy labor, intensifying labor pains, and then deliverance will come. When a baby is born, we talk about labor and delivery. And that is the truth of what the Bible is saying life is about. Sometimes the delivery happens in death. Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He didn't want to die, but he wanted to be with the Lord, which was far better, Philippians 1, 21 through 23. And so the woman is going to have this pain. And every time a child is born, it's going to remind us of the fall. The labor is going to remind us of the curse, the agony, the toil, the sorrow. The birth is going to remind us that there's still hope. There's a deliverance coming. And so we know that when a woman is in travail, it's not always pretty, right? There's screaming and yelling and threats. Right? You did this to me! Guy has to duck and, you know... But then afterwards, it's okay. She still wants to be married to him, in most cases. And (laughs) so there's this labor, but then this beautiful child enters the world. And there's hope in that child's eyes. And parents start to talk about, you know, a name. And what do you think he or she is going to become? And the hopes and dreams of Christian parents are that that child will change the world and preach the hope of the gospel, even though we know from the moment they're born, they're going to experience the curse, and death. This is the world we live in. Morticians and ministers can tell you that death is not a natural thing. It's something we try to sanitize in our culture. It's something that we try to say, well, it's a cycle of life. But death is an unnatural enemy that entered into the garden along with the serpent. And now it's the experience of mankind. But it won't always be. There's a time coming when uh, when the sorrow of death and disease and pain and all those things will be no more. But the woman is going to have pain in childbirth and I think it's about three children are born every second in the world. So it's happening all over the world. It's it's repeated over and over and over again. This reminder of the curse and the fall. Your desire will be for your husband. Some scholars, verse 16, see in the word desire that her desire will be be under the headship of her husband. She kind of left that covering. Adam did nothing, so she's going to come back under that covering, covering, and her desire will be only for her husband to cover. She won't try to usurp authority again. That's possible. But the other use in Genesis of the word desire is in the next chapter, chapter 4, look at verse 7. Chapter 4, verse 7. Cain, uh, his, his offering's been rejected by God. God says these words to him, 4, 7, If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire, there's the same Hebrew word back in Genesis 3, verse 16, its desire is for you, but you must master it. So Hebrew scholars have said it's quite possible that the word desire does not mean she wants to come up under the the covering of her husband to submit to his headship, but her desire will be to dominate her husband just like sin wants to master Cain. And Cain must master it. 
Same Hebrew word. That's why scholars believe that that's the possible meaning of it. If that's the possible meaning of it, it explains a lot. Does it not? Because right from Jump Street, we got problems. Because a woman is going to desire to usurp authority over her husband and dominate him, just like sin wanted to dominate Cain. And he, look at the end of verse 16, chapter 3, shall rule, the word rule speaks of dominion, even implications of harsh rule. He will rule over you. He'll want to be harsh toward her. She will want to dominate him. And we got problems. Now I know that none of you probably experienced this in your marriage. <laughs> that, <laughs> that there's a battle for authority, for whose direction is going to be, you know, take the lead and that kind of thing. We, we've got issues in our marriages. We have to know that this is a potential problem. This is probably what divides most marriages. This is why most marriages end in divorce and disaster. It's because there's, it's the will of two people. If they let their sin nature, their fallenness win the day, the marriage will be gravely affected. That's why in Ephesians 5, Paul says, don't be drunk with wine, be filled with the Spirit. And then he goes into a marriage relationship. Why? Because the key to setting aside yourself and not trying to dominate your spouse is the rule of the Holy Spirit. You shouldn't be ruling. She shouldn't be ruling, as it were. The Spirit should rule. And when the Spirit rules, God-given order will be there. I'm not saying there's not a God-given order. I've been telling you there is a God-given order. However, when the Spirit rules that, there won't be a desire to dominate. There will be a desire to die. That doesn't come natural. Everything in my flesh. Paul says, there's not one good thing in me that is in my flesh. My flesh is about me and me alone. And even when I think I'm doing something, you know, uh, lofty and high, I might be thinking about what's in it for me. (laughs) It's the me monster. And it must die in marriage. That's why Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. Die to self and you will live. It is so counterintuitive. It's so counter my flesh. My flesh doesn't want to die. My flesh wants to live. (laughs) Let me live. Give me what I want. And every day you have to crucify your flesh. I love the image that Chuck Smith gave us of, you know, your old man is dead. The old self is dead. But every now and then the hand comes out of the grave. (laughs) And you got to... labor pains it it explains a lot doesn't it so sometimes you're in a marital spat and you got to ask yourself what's at the what's at the root of how I'm feeling because I'm not getting what I want doesn't that explain a lot because this person's not giving me well how about you start giving that person what they want start blessing them and maybe it'll come back to you but that shouldn't be your motive. <laughs> Each birthday, we're reminded of both travail and hope and this battle. And now to the man, verse 17, to Adam, God said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you. It wasn't a suggestion. It was a command saying, you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground. See the word ground there? 
That is ha-adama. It's the general word for earth used earlier. So this is where it's probably not just the ground, it's the world, it's the earth, it's infected because of Adam's fall. This is what Paul says in Romans 5.12. He says, Through one man's transgression, sin entered the world and death via sin. Adam is ultimately blamed for the fall. He becomes what scholars call the federal head of mankind. He takes the blame and God says, Adam, ha-adama, the earth will be cursed because of you. Because you did not do what I told you to do. I gave you access to all the trees, save one, and you blew it. And now you're going to be cursed. Look at verse uh, 17. He says, uh, you shall not eat from it. Cursed, keyword, cursed is the ground uh, because of you in toil. Same word as her toil in her childbirth. You shall eat of it all the days of your life. Now you're going to have problems in your main calling. You were supposed to cultivate and keep the ground. It's supposed to be a joyful thing for you to go and work and bless your family. Now you're going to have problems. This comes out when we go into the backyard to pull weeds. Look at verse 18. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. Apparently they weren't there in the pre-fall days. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. Here's the curse because from it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. You're going to die and you're going to go back to the stuff from which I made you. Your body is going to die. Here is the curse on the earth. Here is the curse of death. All in this fall chapter. All because of disobedience. All because God is true to his promises. And he said, if you do this, you're going to die. And now the judgments are given by God. And they're, they're sobering. Now all of mankind, all of mankind's progeny experiences death. Ecclesiastes 1.3, Solomon says, What does man gain from all his labor? at which he toils under the sun. Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. And even the earth won't remain forever, but Solomon's looking at life and he's saying, what does living really mean? Generations come and generations go. And we tend to forget about those former generations. We think ours is the only one, but folks, people have lived and died over and over and over again. And this cycle is going to continue, or is it? And then later in Ecclesiastes, he says, God has put eternity in our hearts. He, ma he makes all things beautiful in their time. And there will be a time of resurrection. This pattern will be broken. And Jesus gave us a foretaste of that when he touched a coffin and a young man sat up who was dead. Can you imagine being at that funeral service? When he went into a little girl's room and called her back to life. When he called to the tomb and Lazarus came forth after being dead four days. He gave these little glimpses that he does have the power. And then his own life destroyed this temple. He spoke of his body and in three days I will raise it again. That's how you can know Jesus is true. He said, kill me and I'll raise myself. And he did. And books have come out over the decades attacking the resurrection accounts and their weak arguments, folks. Maybe Jesus had a twin. <laughs> Maybe everybody was hallucinating. A mass hallucination by 500 people. All at the same time. Maybe the disciples stole the body. No, they were hiding behind closed doors. 
fearful of their lives. Maybe Jesus simply swooned on the cross. He passed out and revived in the cold tomb. An early doctor came in there, patched him up. No, he was dead. The sword went into his side. Blood and water came out. It's very clear. He was dead and he's alive again. And he says, because I live, you will live. And his, his resurrection becomes the prototype for ours. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we have what's called the pre-evangel. I guess it's the prediction or prophecy concerning Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. But as we move over to verse 20, if you can emphasize what that means, and you know, I'm sure a lot of people may have read it and skipped over it, but what could be the main emphasis, and why is that so important in verse 20? You're talking about 21 Oscar or the Lord God made garments? That's the one. Okay. (laughs) Well, and you said it before we went on the air, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And um, it would appear that God killed animals to clothe our first parents. And, you know, when we see they were naked and unashamed in Genesis 2.25. And then when they sin, they are exposed and now they feel shame. And you have to ask the question, they're the only humans on the planet, so who... You know, why are they feeling shame? Well, you could say, well, they feel shame with one another, but they are married. Uh, I don't think that they, the animals are the issue. So they feel shame before God is what I would conclude, or at least that's what the uh, thrust seems to be. Well, sin did expose them. Yeah. So you think that's where that shame continued on? Yes. And I mentioned, you know, looking at the Hebrew idea for shame, it does have the idea of, of uh, self Self-loathing or a low self-worth, that's what shame is. You, you, you feel like you have no worth. And so you try to cover that, right? You try to find mm-hmm. a way to cover the blemishes and, and all of that. And what God does is he kills animals. This is what we at least read between the lines here because he, he used the skins of animals. And um, you know, some have even suggested, Oscar, that maybe a lamb died way back here. You talk about the pre-evangel, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we don't know for sure. Other animals did die in sacrifice, like uh, you know bulls and goats and that kind of thing. But what this really means, and I think you were going towards this um, before we were recording, is you know Isaiah says uh, our righteousness is as filthy rags before the Lord. And there's so many people that they're trying to cover themselves. They have a sense of guilt, a sense of shame, a sense that there's a God of justice, and yet. They think, well, maybe good works will make me acceptable, or maybe, you know, if I'm religious enough, or if I, if I make, you know, my own personal atonement. Some people think that they have to do that. Uh, well, I'll do seven good things over here, and then that'll wipe out, you know, my mistake over here. But that's, that's not the gospel. The gospel is something else has to die, in your stead. Thank you for listening to today's program. If you'd like to listen to this message again, learn more about our church in Corona, or to access archived messages, go to livingtruthradio.org and click on the church tab. You can follow us on Instagram at livingtruthcorona or download the Living Truth Christian Fellowship app on Apple and Android devices. Living Truth Radio is a listener-supported ministry. You can partner with us by donating at livingtruthradio.org.